Hello and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience to help shape your knowledge of the industry. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or at, at by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Our hosts today are myself, Brian Fox, and Carol Tallon. Okay, and thank you. Now, we've an exciting lineup of guests in studio today, but first we'll take a look at some of the stories of the week. So, while mortgage approvals actually rose by 9.5% in April, fewer people are investing in the buy-to-let property sector with almost a 30% fall in mortgage approvals for this category of buyer. Some 118 mortgages for buy-to-let properties were approved in April, down 29.8% on the same month last year. Now, this also follows a drop of 7% in March. So, according to the Irish Times this week, landlords have been leaving the rental market despite rents reaching record highs and it appears that new investors aren't scrambling to fill their places. Very good. Some very interesting pieces there, Carl, I must say. But uh, as we all know, the local election results for this area are all in now, while the national story is that the Green Party will now dominate most local authorities in Dunleary, Rathdown and uh, South Dublin County Councils. Most incumbents were re-elected. Among those who kept her seat in Dunleary, Rathdown is Independent Councillor Anne Colgan. Thanks for coming in, Anne. You're welcome. So, uh, from your website, uh, you see imaginative, sustainable local planning as one of your priorities to work on. From what, pers- from that perspective, how do you judge the results? That's a very challenging question, but I think the res- results are to be found in the experience of, of the, the resident, you know, in many ways. I think um, people want to live in communities. They don't just live in houses or units. And the um, sustainability depends on the availability of not just uh, a home or an apartment, but close by, you know, this, the, the context, the community context in which it fits. So that means the green spaces, the access routes to uh, libraries, shops, community facilities, the cycling facilities, the walkability of the of the space. So, I mean, that to me is what sustainability is all about. Uh, and that, I suppose, is what worries me about some of the current development, that it may not be going in that direction. In, mm. in what way? Well, I've heard people say that they worry that uh, the the rush to build homes and build apartments in particular in in the area where I live in Dundrum has one of the highest ratios of apartment building in the whole of Dundee right down. So that is coming upon people, you know, who already live there as as a they perceive it as an, a negative experience in spite of the fact that they're very sympathetic to the need for, for, for house building. But I have a sense that on board Planola in judging those planning applications for apartment blocks in particular are acting more like a, a building control organisation rather than a planning organisation because planning ought to be about more than the bricks and mortar uh, and making sure they adhere to building height regulations and space regulations. They ought to be looking at communities and I'm not convinced that they are and I I think a lot of people who live around are not convinced either. Mm. So is there is there is there much interaction, shall we say, between communities and, and, and councils and specifically perhaps Don Leary right down kind of councils? Well, yes, but th- as you know, the strategic housing developments where uh, yeah. developments of 100 units go straight to on board Planola. And now we've had a, a proliferation of new building regs coming out from the department, you know, at the rate of 
one every couple of months, you know. And as you know, the Building Heights regulation, because they were promised, held up developments. And uh, planning applications that had been approved were withdrawn and resubmitted with the higher number of apartments. So that, you know, slowed down building in many ways, but people, developers have come back with, with higher numbers of, uh, of apartments. And the impact of that is that the county development plan and the local area plans have been sidelined in effect. You know, the the, the regulations have included these uh, um, considerations that are have the effect of law that if there's a clash between the county development plan and what the developer wants, if on board Panola so judges that the county development plan is set aside, the local area plan is set aside. And we've seen this around Dublin generally. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Dublin City Council in particular, those development plans took a very long time and a great deal of consideration and consultation to put together. And I think it's wrong that the department has rushed into these, in my view, poorly thought out new kinds of regulations that are not in the best interest of communities, either the people who would live in those apartments or the people in the surrounding communities. Yeah, I think I think I have to jump in there and just mm. to say I, I'm not sure that that's fair to say that all development plans are well thought out. I don't think that's the case at all. And in fact, our current sitting Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, only in the last two months gave a very telling interview, which was on the front page of the Sunday Business Post, where he actually spoke about um, part of his job, a, a part of his initial um, brief when he went into planning and housing was he was very mindful of the poor decisions that he and fellow Dublin city councillors had taken um, in developing the Dublin, uh, the local development plan mm. um, or local area plan for Dublin city. And in fact, he actually went so far as to say that they did, he and his fellow councillors did bow under the pressure of what he called, in his words, vested interests. Now, he did go on to say that those vested interests certainly felt that they were acting in the best interests of the community, but it transpired, he believed, that that wasn't the case. So he was able to look back at at mistakes that were made by him and his fellow councillors. And in fact, I thought it was very brave for him to come out and talk about this just months, you know, uh, uh, just months before uh, local elections coming up to come out and say this. But he also did it in a way that he wanted to, I think, put down the marker to local authorities and say that actually we need to start planning differently. So um, and also, you know, you also said there that actually the local area plans are being pushed aside in favour of what the developer wants if on board mm. Planola judges it to be so that genuinely isn't how it works and board Planola actually has a very uh, strict remit but actually on board Planola is a very visionary it's made mm. up of planners from the public from the public sector who have a vision mm. and they're looking to work with um, private developers but also project owners who are approved housing bodies mm. because remember the approved housing bodies when we're looking to develop mm. social housing that goes under strategic um, housing as well so in fact they have a wide remit so I don't think it's fair to say that they're overruling local area plans for what the developers want because that's genuinely not what's happening um, it, it, we have to take a broader view of planning and I have no doubt whatsoever that under under um, Ireland 2040, we know that half a million new homes are needed. We know that over half of those are needed within the, the boundaries of Dublin. And it is definitely going to um, disrupt communities. It's definitely going to disrupt people who have front and rear gardens that we're just not going to be able to deliver density 
in that way um, in 20 years time it is unlikely that people mm. are going to be retaining front and, and rear gardens it's just not a sustainable way for mm. a city to grow um, so I fully accept what you're saying about communities but there has to be there has to be some equal measure because otherwise these communities can't grow with the next generation mm. where are the next generation supposed to go how do you want to respond to that? Well, I, I suppose the first thing I would say is I'm not anti-developer. Mm. You know, I, I would never locate myself in, in that space. I think developers have a hugely important role to play in making sure we get the housing that we need. But I am not convinced uh, that the, the department's approach to development is a good one. And I would say in relation to Minister Murphy, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, you know, he, I would think, you know, should respect the the expertise of our local planners. You know, the councillors, of course, uh, work on the county development plans and they engage with the planners, mm. but the planners have the lead role. And I believe our planners in places like Dundee Town are experts mm. and they do a great job. And I think, you know, when politicians at national level talk about, you know, nimbyism and, and talk about local planners not doing a good job, I don't accept that at all. Uh, I think we are moving, you know, fast into a new dispensation and particularly in the city, a new type of housing. And I don't think it has been well thought out in the longer term. I think some of the decisions about, for example, the funding mechanisms for the rent to buy uh, platform in particular have been bad decisions. Uh, I think the decisions about co-working spaces, co-living spaces, I think are bad decisions. I think that will not lead to good quality homes in the longer term. And in the longer term, I would worry about the kinds of of pressures that those kinds of, of um, developments will bring. If anything came up on the doorsteps mm. over the last two months, you probably would be surprised that one of the things that people secure in their homes were most upset about was the proliferation of, of, of um, built to rent. Well, uh, of course they are because they're sitting secure in their homes. That's exactly the point. The people who are sitting secure in their homes aren't the people who are facing the problems of not being able to find somewhere to rent or spending two and a half thousand to three thousand per month to rent. It's obscene how we're expecting a generation that we that we hope will become homeowners in the next decade. Mm. It's obscene that we're asking them to pay between two and a half and mm. three thousand. But that rent. is precisely the point that these people are making. They're saying it doesn't affect me. It affects my sons and daughters. And why can't we have a situation where apartments are being built that they can buy? Why is the government allowing the proliferation of, of the bill to rent? Uh, only and not giving an opportunity for people to buy an apartment in their own area. Oh, but genuinely, Anne, you're actually speaking in a circle there because it, it's actually objections to build to rent means that there are, aren't as many units for build to rent. So there aren't as many units to rent, which pushes up the price of rent, which is exactly what's causing this problem. So actually, what we need is more development. And by the way, I I accept fully some of the points you're making there in terms of build to rent brings its own problems. There's no doubt about that. However, remember that no one housing solution um, is, is going to solve the problem at this stage. Also, each housing solution actually brings its own problems, mm. like built to rent brings its own problems, co-living big builds, uh, brings its own problems, as does developing um, uh, urban sprawl or, or suburban sprawl of three bed semis mm. with front and rear gardens. They bring their own problems. But the reality is in a housing crisis and a rental crisis, the reality is that every new 
residential unit that's delivered to the market has to be seen as part of the solution. It has to be seen as part of the solution. And our job is to make sure that the solution is balanced so it's not just focused on social housing and it's not just focused on student accommodation and it's not just focused on co-living because we understand that the market will take in that direction because that's what's profitable. So this is where the role of our expert local planners comes in mm, and, and the control of local authorities comes in that we get that balance. So yes, there will be alternative models of housing needed for Ireland. That's just the reality because, quite frankly, as a population, we've outgrown um, uh, student squalor and then two-bed apartments to rent as young professionals and then three-bed semis uh, as you for your first start or home and then you move into suburbia. Like that, Those days are gone. That's not how that's just not representative of how we will live in the future because it's not sustainable. So there will be alternative models of housing and I fully agree co-living has been quite poorly implemented Mm. in Ireland. That doesn't mean it's not a solution. And remember, part of this problem, the reason co-living has come in is because we took away the bottom rung of the ladder by changing the apartment sizes. And in fact, what, what we did is we eliminated um, the bottom rung of the ladder without anything suitable to take its place. And what happens in any commercial market is that once you create a void, the market will step in to fill it. And generally speaking, we're not going to like what, what goes in its place. So we actually were part of the problem in demanding larger apartments and dual aspect and balconies and car parking with everything. So we were absolutely part of the problem in eliminating the bottom rung of the ladder uh, that also contributed to homelessness because there was nowhere for those people to go. I'm a big fan of dual aspect. I think people should be able to have light and, you know, there are so many apartments now that are just north facing and people, you know, the time they spend in them will be... But do you you think it's fair then if, if the only apartments you build are dual aspect? Do you think it's fair that only people who are part of a couple and combined earning more than 150,000 a year are able to afford to live there. I take your point and I I take your point that some of the solutions are going to have downsides and and are going to have problems. I'm just not convinced that the balance is in favour of sustainable development. I think the balance has slipped away from that and that there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction to um, building high, building quick building you know small necessarily and that you know we will pay the price I mean one of the things that really scares me is with the drop in home ownership for example and we're seeing a drop in home ownership is that 20 years from now you're going to have a generation of people who will reach retirement age they will be in rented accommodation their income will drop but their rents will still be really high and we will have a new homeless bubble among senior citizens. Yeah, that's you know. that's a huge problem. In fact, it's something we've tackled here on the show a couple of times over the last few months. That's one of the biggest problems that we have with the lack of affordability, not just in Dublin, but across mm. Ireland at the moment. Because actually, we did have somebody in talking about how a younger generation are choosing to rent. And I, you know, that's that's a different that's a different mm. issue. But the reality is that if we for people who are who are not in a position to buy they need to be investing in an income generating asset and that alternative just isn't available in Ireland. So it's no good to point to alternatives like the German market where people are in the habit of of renting for mm. lifetimes, but they're also in the habit of investing in an income generating you, asset you, you from just, the time they're just raise a topic that many listeners probably don't know about and that's dual aspect. I think dual aspect are small apartments, aren't they, With uh, that are looking into? Oh, dual aspect would 
would be looking in two directions. Two directions, right. They would have light coming in from two directions and uh, hopefully some of them facing south. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. And they're becoming popular, are they? No, they're, they've been ruled... Well, the regulations to say that all apartments would be dual aspect have been removed. So oh, OK, yeah, yeah, I see, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I, I, I was remiss when I was introducing you there not to congratulate you on your on becoming a, a councillor as well, this time fully elected as, as yes, opposed to co-opted and, and well done. <laughs> um, just from the point of view of, of how it's gone now uh, in terms of the green sweep as such, yes. do you see uh, any sort of change in policy? Uh, you know, I, I, was talk, I talk nationally, but also with our own area now of Dundrum. Uh, Dundeary, um, are any more pressure being put on the executive within the council to provide uh, councils with more power, I suppose, to, to plan ahead in terms of property? I don't, to be honest. You don't? No, I, I, I don't see the the green agenda. Or we have six green councillors now compared to two, for example, in Dundeary Town, and that's great. I mean, I think it's really good to see the new focus on climate change and everything that that means. And in terms of housing, uh, obviously it means, um, you know, the quality of the housing and the... Uh, passive housing developments and so on. Our housing stock, our social housing stock in Dunleary at Down, the new bills are absolutely top of the range in terms of of those kinds of standards. Our big challenge is we have about 4,000 units and I suppose more than half of those would be around the C or D energy rating. So the investment to bring those up to a standard, that's going to be a big challenge for Dundee Down in terms of capital money and whether the department will fund them to do that. Yeah. Uh, so are you optimistic then going forward or how do you feel about the whole thing? I, I think it's 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 a really good pressure yeah. to be putting on because every provider. The, the other thing I want to talk agency. to you about too is before we wrap this up and that is... Um, your chairperson, Alan, indeed founder of Imagine Dundrum, That's as right, listeners yes. are aware, major developments are planned for the old Dundrum uh, shopping centre village. How are those plans progressing at the moment? Well, at the moment, there are a number of interlocking developments. We're, we're in a holding situation, yeah. for example, the Dundrum local area plan. Uh, has passed its first stage of development, the pre-consultation phase, and we have obviously made a major submission to the council in relation to the what we would like to see happening in Dundrum under the auspices of the local area plan, and that's going to be really positive right. because we hope we'll have an opportunity to reshape the village, the the public realm bits of that. Yeah. Then, as far as the work on the Hammerson site itself is concerned, and their own that's property, the old shopping centre, the old shopping centre, yeah, and yeah. the st- side of the street that they own where they own and right. property right up yeah. to the church. They're uh, in the process of preparing their master plan and they expect to have a planning application ready towards the Q4 of this year. So they have committed to us that they would engage with the public, with the community before they actually launch a, their planning application, There's which no is a really good development. Expected date on that consultation? No, they've just said before the end of this year. But the critical thing that joins the council and the Hammerson is the our push for a, a new civic building on that site and right. a new modern library and yeah. that will require an engagement between Some the council and Hammerson right. and we're very positive about that, we're getting good vibes. Thanks for coming in and that was uh, independent councillor Anne Collin who sits on Dunleary Down County Council. 
Now, because of the local elections, the Doyle sittings were cut short last week. So this evening, the Rural Independent Group is uh, has a private member's bill and has a motion regarding what is colloquially known as vulture funds, or otherwise known as investment funds. On Wednesday afternoon, Fianna Fáil and private members' business have a bill before the House called the Housing Adaptation Grant for People with a Disability Bill 2018, second stage. They're about, that's about it for this week in terms of what's going through. So we'll have more details on these in next week's programme. Very interesting pieces to say to, to kick off this week's episode with. Uh, thanks again to um, Anne Colgan. So stay tuned after the break. With us in the studio, we'll have uh, Trevor Kelly, public loss accessor and properties claims expert at Insurance Claim Solutions. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. Now, welcome back to this week's episode of Property Matters here on Dublin South FM with Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. As mentioned before the break, our next guest up today is Trevor Kelly, public loss adjuster and property claims expert at Insurance Claim Solutions. Trevor, thank you for joining us in the studio today. So the first thing I'm going to do is actually just maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work you do as a loss adjuster and just so people can understand it. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me today, Carl and Brian. Um, I'm a loss assessor, so what I do is I work on behalf of policyholders who suffer damage to their home or business and wish to pursue a claim under a policy. Essentially, we step into the policyholder's shoes, uh, represent them through all stages of the claim to make sure that they get the best possible compensation as per the terms of our policy. Very good. And really, one of the questions, because we were actually speaking off air, and one of the things that I, I noted was yours are the type of services that people don't like to think about until they actually need them. So you might just point out to property owners at what stage they might need you, what's keeping you busy at the moment. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, you're right, uh, Carl. A lot of the uh, policyholders don't never want to see us coming. Uh, we, As I say to people, we don't cause the damage. We're there to help people clean it up. Um, I suppose people will get ourselves involved uh, initially generally before they actually even report the insurance uh, to their insurance to claim to their insurance policy uh, provider uh, we will co- we'll then come in we'll do a full um, uh, full no obligation survey to examine the full extent of the damage to determine exactly what's covered under the policy and advise the policyholder on mitigation techniques to ensure that uh, any further damage is reduced and that they can stabilise the property. We're often there a day or two or three depending on the insurance company before the loss adjuster arrives on site so we can be critical of maintaining the uh, the claims costs and ensuring that the policyholder uh, mitigates the loss correctly. Mitigation techniques sounds a little bit intimidating for people who are going through a crisis. Yeah. What does that, what does that actually mean? So mitigation would be if you have say a leak, you have a se- severe leak in one room, and you have undamaged rooms that are, are haven't been affected by the loss itself. If you don't put in place an action plan with uh, water extraction or dehumidification or air movement, if you don't put that in place at the very very start, you could have areas that were unaffected. Be affected by the by the loss. Uh, be the similar similar type if you had say a wet uh, plastics fire and we had um, some primary damage, which would be thermal damage to, to building components. But you could have the smoke, which have you could have as- acidic residues, which if they're not treated correctly at the very very start, they can lead to staining of uh, of UPVC items, plastic items. So we can come in at the very very start and ensure that the correct. Uh, damage limitation techniques are um, employed. There's a lot of it's a lot of media talk now of, of uh, as you as you probably know of apartments and houses built in in the in the, in the uh, Celtic Tiger years that have 
quite a number of defects and, and, and they seem to have no comeback on it at all. I mean, would you be uh, engaged in assessing damage there as such? Yeah, well, traditionally we deal with insurance claims mm. that are covered under people's insurance policies. Insurance claims on people's insurance policies are generally due to a fortuitous or once-off uh, peril. So, say, for argument's sake, a, a, a pipe bursts in your attic or a, f- a fire occurs or someone unfortunately drives into the front of your building or s- a storm damage your building. Then we can get involved and mediate on behalf of the policyholder and make sure we advocate and uh, handle the claim for them. In relation to fire stopping issues and pyrite damage, those are things that traditionally would not be covered under your home insurance policy because they would fall under the realm of builder's defects, bad design, or bad workmanship. Now, they would be covered, um, the likes of pyrite, covered under the, the resolution board, um, and that's that's being done separately through um, through a separate management company. Uh, no, we, we wouldn't get involved. Uh, we'd get involved with insurance claims with direct insurance providers. Okay, so the insurance company would directly directly hire you. Is that it? I mean, a... a, a, a person that owns a house or owns an apartment would see some damage done or something like that caused by the by the uh, people that were that built the the, the, uh, the dwelling um, no well we wouldn't we wouldn't get involved there we would only get involved in situations where uh, damage would be covered under your home insurance policy and in order to uh, have damage covered under your home insurance policy it would have to have to occur within the period of insurance and it would have to be oh, a once off yeah, yeah. or fortuitous uh, yeah. peril so yeah. um, we would be hired directly by the policyholder right. to work on their behalf and oh, we would okay. then work in conjunction with the insurance company's loss adjusters to, yeah. to get to the best possible terms and a fair and reasonable outcome for our own clients. And just, just as a matter of interest, would, oh, are there many consumers, are there people that own homes, are they look to take out insurance of that description or, or, or what? how do they perceive, how do they see it? Well, generally, uh, people's homeowners insurance, are, the premiums are very low. Histor- there are um, historically low rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you could get a... Uh, insurance policy for uh, with restable insurer buildings uh, of uh, buildings amount some insured of 200,000 or and contents of say 30 to 40,000 you could get that premium for 250 300 euros per year yeah. so you have 300 grand worth of cover there for 250,000 so um, it's the best money you'll ever spend to protect your home because it is your biggest asset so right. um, I would come across some people would ring me and say listen I've had a fire but I've no insurance or my neighbours had a fire and uh, it's affected my property and I've no insurance but unfortunately, your own property, you'd have to deal with it on your own um, under the Accidental Fires Act. Um, you're you're only entitled to claim for for damage to your own property. Your neighbour's policy won't extend to yourself. So okay. um, my advice to anybody listening here would be to if you don't have insurance, ring, ring your ring your provider and, in the morning and, would, and get it. Would, would the estate agent that that's selling the property would they encourage people or would they get involved with it with the with that transaction? Well, most um, most house sales involve a mortgage provider. Right. And one of your stipulations right. under your mortgage conditions would be that you have to have a buildings insurance for no less than what the, the market value or the rebuilding value of the property is. Most uh, mortgage providers would state that they, you have to insure at least the amount that you have under mortgage. Um, so it would be a very, very small percentage of people that wouldn't have home insurance. Yeah. Okay. Um so obviously, it's 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 uh, it's vitally important to appoint a, a loss a loss assessor. Well, not necessarily. If the claim is small. And there's very very little damage, or it's one single single uh, component. It may not be worthwhile to bring a loss assessor in. You may be able to identify the damage in your own um, on your own uh, merits, or bring in a contractor. Where it gets a little bit more difficult is if you have a couple of different 
areas that have been affected by the claim. If you have a water damage incident and you may have some secondary mould growth, you may have some uh, floors that have been affected, you may have doors that are starting to stick, you may have uh, water damage in behind fitted units. It's vitally important um, to get somebody out. Um, I'm a building surveyor myself. It's vitally important to get somebody out who knows how buildings are put together to identify and to source all of the damage in our property that that can be presented to your insurance company for validation or approval. Oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that before. So actually, conceivably, there could be um, there could be a flood or actually just before Christmas, I, I was doing a course and the, one of the women I was on the course with, her beautiful home, um, they had flooding from, I, I, I don't know, was it their bathroom or somebody else's bathroom overhead? And it was all you could see was this beautifully decorated home with water coming down through the light fittings until they until they actually found where to turn off this power source and all. But are you saying that you could have an event like that, which is upsetting, uh, you know, upsetting Mm. enough. But if all the damage wasn't identified there and then. So if you just did a cursory inspection, saw well, this is the only damage and got your insurance cover out. If everything wasn't found and then something later transpired had been hidden like mould or yeah. something like that um, or, or any latent issues like that, what's the case? Can you go back to your insurer? Right. Um, the, the law, I suppose, it's like a short, short, short story there. The, um, it's up to the, lo- the policyholder or the policyholder's representative to present the claim to the insurance company for approval. It's not the loss adjuster or the insurance company's uh, role to come out and determine take out kitchen units or take out uh, uh, washing machines or units. It's not their role to find the damage and say, well, here, here's the damage. Uh, this is what uh, we'll allow you. The insurance company will need to be presented with a uh, comprehensive, a comprehensive claim document mm-hmm. documenting all the damage that's on site and reasons for uh, replacement or repair or whatever is required. It's very, very unusual that if you have, a say, a vertical water incident, which that sounds like it was, Carol, mm. that you have damage just confined to what you can see. Mm. I don't want to use scare tactics, but I come across situations that if wa- if water damage is not cle- cle- uh, clear- cleared up correctly or cleared up in, t- in a timely fashion, you have uh, instances where you have mould growth. And the problem is buildings nowadays, they're built to air tightness. Very, very little ventilation, which is which is fine if you have an air management system and it's fine in normal occupation of the building. But the problem is when you introduce additional water into the building from a pipe leak or a boar's tank, water is actually a pollutant in the building. So you may have uh, you may have mould grow. What you also have is if you have an, an area, say, high water damage, you have a high level of relative humidity in that room. That will force its way into other areas in the property of low uh, in order to try and get equilibrium mm-hmm. so it's trying to it'll try so you may if it's not dealt with in a timely fashion if carpets aren't cleaned or removed if dehumidification hasn't taken place if air movement hasn't taken place if the, the property hasn't been stabilised you may find that areas that have looked unaffected are starting to uh, show signs of mould mould is present everywhere but it only grows when it gets to a certain level. Okay, but yeah. what happens if you have put in your claim and it's only afterwards you discover these these additional things. Yeah, well, a lot of the times when you make a settlement with your insurance company, it's a full and final settlement. 
So essentially, if any latent effect or defects, I don't use the term latent yeah. defects because obviously it means something else there. Secondary but damage. You secondary call it, damage. Yeah. So if that's discovered after your insurance settlement, then there's nothing you can do about well, it. Well, I'm not saying there's nothing you can do, but it's very, very hard to get a case reopened if it's something that should have been reasonably foreseen. Mm-hmm. And then you decide it's not sort of a, they don't. It's the insurance companies not say, well, listen, listen. See how you get on with that, and sure, if you see any more, you come back to us. Mm-hmm. You really yeah, have yeah. one. Cha- you have mm. a very, very small window and a very, very short opportunity to present the claim to your mm. insurance company. And in my experience, if you present the claim to the insurance company, they have no problem making payment oh, or I've giving you or indemnifying you. Yeah, yeah. So they're not too conservative then. They're not too cautious in relation to the report that you're mm. handing over to them. Yeah, well, well, we have a very, I have a very good relationship with. Uh, mm. the loss adjusters I'm a professional building surveyor myself I have specialist mm. uh, fire and flood restoration training mm. um, a lot more than a lot of the guys out there so uh, th- I have a very very good professional standing with them so I don't present something to an, a loss adjuster or an insurance company that I can't stand right. over right. Are yeah. all loss, loss adjusters would they come from a building surveying background? Yeah, major- yeah majority of, of loss assessors believe it or not would come out of my class in Dundalk okay. uh, like I was I'd done a five year degree in building surveying in Dundalk uh, IT it's an SCS SCSI accredited course um, it was the, it's the only one in the country that's um, the building surveying course in the country so um no, a lot of a lot of guys would have been recruited out of there, um, and a lot of loss assessors, a lot of loss adjusters would be also be recru- recruited out of there as well. Yeah, so um, being a building building surveyor actually works hand in hand with with because you're dealing with buildings day in day out. So in order to correctly assess them, it does really help to to know the technology of them. Yeah, I'd imagine that this is something that say commercial landlords or um, property managers would be well familiar with. So you know initially as soon as an event like this happens however unfortunate someone like you would be the first people that you know that they would call however for residential homeowners do they even know that this is the step that these are the steps to take yeah well sometimes we get called in after the policyholder has tried to do it themselves right and unfortunately your first opportunity to present the claim has been taken away from you not saying that we can't pull it we can't pull it back but first, first impressions are, are very important. And if you don't present it correctly and uh, if if you don't uh, employ the correct techniques in order to identify it, then trying to go back later on just gives it a little bit more of a mountain to climb. I would say to anybody, if they suffer damage, the best thing to do is call a public loss assessor who will decipher your insurance policy, who will come out and do a survey and determine exactly if you are covered and what you're covered uh-huh. for. Uh, I would give my finance anybody and if we take the case on, we, 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 we take we take it on on a complimentary basis on a no, no win, no fee basis. So if we don't get a payment for our client, we don't charge a client. Okay, and actually that was going to be my next question as in who pays for this? Because I would imagine that again, because you're hitting people at times of crisis, um, you know, they might be cautious about more, uh, spending more or taking more of a loss. So... How does that how does that work and how do you judge that when you look at a consider a case? Yeah, well it's definitely uh, disconcerting when you know you're going to be out of pocket for your excess to start off with. You know you're going to have an increase in your premium because you're going to lose your no claims bonus. So it's all about educating the consumer, making sure that they're aware of the f- the full implications and not identifying the damage and the benefits that I can bring to the case for for the policyholder. Um, we do, we don't do the hard sell. People can look on our website, they can see the testimonials, they can speak to our, ex, ex, our ex-clients. Um, I'm very transparent in relation to that. Um, but I would say some small claims don't need a loss assessor, 
but some bigger if you have a bigger claim with more than one or two rooms affected and a couple of different components affected it's very very um, it's prudent to get a loss assessor in mm-hmm. to basically come in and do a full survey to identify it and manage the claim on your behalf Okay, and then do you work to bring in contractors or to assist with the reinstatement works? Yeah, we're a professional consultancy, so we don't carry out the repairs directly. Um, we we do have a lot of we do have a lot of contact, a lot of access to a suite of professionals, um, be it engineers, uh, surveyors, contractors, tradesmen, and uh, we we assist our clients in the appointment, and we also supervise the reinstatement works if required. And it, does that all come under the fees? Yeah, no, we would, we, I would always be, um, I would always basically have a maximum fee of 10, 10%. That's what we'd always, maximum, uh, maximum fee of 10%. And depending on the size of the claim and the complexity, the uh, fee may be uh, agreed on an individual basis. Um, okay. Yeah. okay, but that's obviously after a claim has been made. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, very good. And I, I, again, because uh, as we start this conversation, because we know that yours is a service that people seek out as and when they need it, how do you go about communicating to people that this is a service? Is it something that maybe insurance companies would advise? Would they ever advise to bring in a public loss adjuster? Oh, yeah. Or assessor? <clears throat> Under the central bank regulations, when you report a claim to your insurance company, they have to tell you that you're entitled to appoint a public loss assessor okay. at your own expense. Right. So... Um, that's that's what uh, that's one of, one of the roles that insurance companies say. Well, have a public loss assessor, so they, they Google public loss assessor, and then they find a company like ourselves or, or a comparable company to come out and do the survey. Um, so, it, generally, we work with insurance brokers and solicitors and uh, tradesmen, and they would uh, they would be a source of, of our, our referral works. Yeah. Very good. Um, okay, Trevor, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for that information. So that was Trevor Kelly, Public Loss Adjuster and Property Claims Expert at Insurance Claims Solutions. And um, you might just give us your website there for people to take a look at. Yeah, no, my website is www.insuranceclaimsolutions.ie. That's perfect. Thank you. So thank you again for coming in, Trevor. And stay tuned after the break as we've Mark Dirk and founder and director of Best Bid joining us. Everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. OK, and welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. As mentioned before the break in studio with us now, we've Mark Durkin, founder and director of Best Bid, an Irish prop tech company. And we're delighted to have you here with us today, Mark. So you're very pleasure. welcome. Tell us, what is Best Bid? Uh, firstly, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, so Best Bid is, uh, firstly, it's a property company. It's not a technology company. But what we do is we use technology to make the process of both buying and selling property much more convenient, 100% transparent and essentially a much better experience for everybody involved. So it, it's, um, it's an online property marketplace for buyers and sellers, and it can be found at bestbid.ie. So we offer property for sale via monthly online property auctions to what is a global buyer marketplace. So that's a very important point worth noting there. So whether you're a homeowner looking to sell your own property or an investor looking to sell multiple properties, 
best bid is the perfect choice for doing that. Um, equally, if you're actually in the market to buy a property, whether you're a first-time buyer or whether you are, are trading up or trading down, obviously bestbid.ie in terms of how it operates um, is obviously an excellent choice in terms of doing that. Okay, and Mark, you're an estate agent yourself. Um, so how long have you been in that business? So I'm an estate agent day in, day out. Um, I've been in the industry for about 15 years. Um, I would be obviously a member of the Society of Charged Surveyors. Uh, and one of my reasons for, for uh, developing the technology behind bestbid.ie is simply that um, in the estate agency business and buying and selling property, the length of time that it takes for a private treaty sale and, uh, and I guess if you like that trust element within the transaction, uh, there's a number of issues that exist out there. And um, for me, being involved in that industry, uh, what I was trying to do was to make that 100% transparent in terms of other buyers in the marketplace so that if you're interested in a property, you can look at, obviously, you register on our system and uh, you can see any previous bids, it's fully transparent and you can order bid if you wish. So there's no uh, fake bidding or anything else like that that goes on in the, in, uh, through our platform. Yeah, I think they're the magic words um, for the property industry today, uh, trust, uh, time and transparency. So obviously because you've been in the marketplace for 15 years, you must be seeing this trend with buyers and sellers. You know, we live in an on-demand time. People don't want to spend they don't want to wait for weeks and weeks for conveyancing and for title deeds to be prepared in advance. So, you know, what are, I, I know you mentioned there the time and the transparency, but, you know, what does the process look like for, say, sellers who okay. want to use best bid? Okay, so the, the easy way to look at that is from the perspective of, let's say, for instance, the seller. So if I'm a homeowner or I'm an investor and I'm looking to sell a portfolio, uh, the simple process is, is to contact ourselves. So all the team within BestBid, we're all surveyors, we're all with the Society of Charter Surveyors. So we will guide you exactly in terms of the best process. So for a property to be put up onto BestBid, it goes into our catalogue. We normally release our catalogue um, sort of four weeks before what will be our auction date. So the process of selling these particular assets takes place through a timed auction. So that might be a month out and it will take place on that, st on that day, for example, and it would last for about 20 minutes. So if you're if is you're, this an online auction this is an online, online auction, auction only right, yeah, and it's yeah. fully transparent and uh, it's there so if you're looking to sell your property obviously you would, you would talk to ourselves mm. we would get uh, we would give you any of the sort of the, the details that we have in terms of the conveyance in mm. uh, putting a valuation on that property getting any sort of uh, marketing material so you're offering a service basically to the buyer absolutely so the <clears> same <throat> thing that you would traditionally mm. you, we still provide that service because that's needed to do to obviously get to the property on our website Side and available for viewing and everything else like that. Online. Uh, well, we, we would still hold viewings at the, at the particular property itself. Mm -hmm. But in terms of going online and looking at the property, you can still do that. So in other words, it's a Google sort of situation. You, you, you're going to Google and see what's, what's available and then... Yeah, well, you'd go to, to bestbid.ie, you'd yeah. look at the actual the auction catalogue itself, you'd mm -hmm. find a particular property that you may be interested in, um, you'd look at all the details behind that. Obviously, any property that's on our website would have a full legal pack. The legal pack will then have any of the conditions of sale, um, it would obviously be the standard law society contract for sale, but there might be special conditions in that. Mm. Uh, in addition to that, it would be anything that of a legal nature. Let's say if there was any tenant agreements in there, if there was any leasehold interests or whatever it might be, all of that would be contained within the legal pack. Mm. Now, if somebody's looking to sell their property via our particular platform, we obviously have partner legal firms that can assist in terms of legal packs 
or if they have their own legal pact with their own lawyer or whatever, they can have, obviously, that's perfect. That's a perfect scenario. But if they don't, we can assist them in terms of getting that legal pact done. Okay, now, and actually, Mark, in terms of the buyers, because presumably you're collecting um, some data on buyers. So do you have an indication of who's using this technology? So um, I, I presume the sellers are people who come to you as an estate agent who wish to sell. Yeah. So how are buyers reacting to to the this new technology? Yeah. So I suppose the thing in terms of who are just quickly on that, who is the seller? So the sellers are anybody from homeowners to institutions to asset managers to whoever it might be looking to sell, looking to sell those properties. The, the other side of that is that, um, so to, to go back on that, so that's, if you like, who the parties are to sell it. So the buyers in that perspective, they will see these assets for sale and they'll demonstrate that interest themselves. Sorry, Carol, I forget your question. No, I was really trying to get a look at um, the trend of buyers. Like, are they young? Are they Nobody cash buyers? Them. Are they cash investors? Are they mortgage buyers? Yeah, who's, but it's a, it's who's a, using the technology? Yeah, it's a full cross-section, to be perfectly honest with you. It's not necessarily... Um, but mortgaged and cash. Yeah, it's a combination. So it's first-time buyers that are obviously using um, you know, different funders out there to fund part of the transaction, but they'd have a cash element themselves. There's cash buyers in the marketplace, obviously, there to do that as well. But what we've done is, because not everybody is going to, con- uh, if you like, c- uh, conduct a transaction uh, in, in full cash, we've partnered with, obviously some finance houses in terms of who will provide auction finance. So when you're purchasing a property within this particular platform and how this operates is there's a there's a certain time window that these deals have to be concluded on. Mm. So when a property is brought to the market via our platform and the auction takes place, if you're the win and bidder, you essentially have to pay 10% of the hammer price within two working days of the end of that auction. And then you have a further 28 days to pay the balance of what is the actual auction price. Okay, okay. Two, day, two days from closing the auction, that's quite generous to pay the deposit. Normally it's instant, isn't it? So what happens is, so, so let me just go back on that because it might be a clarification there. So if you're going to register as a buyer, you will first have identified a lot that you're particularly interested in. You will then go through and register on bestbid.ie. We capture some key information from you, which is to make sure you are who you say you are in terms of know your customer and compliance, stuff like that. And we obviously check some proof of identity and everything else like that. Once all that has been done and verified by our back office and we create your account, you will then have to fund, let's say, what is the deposit amount for the for the for the particular property Prior to that you're bidding. going after, you'll have to do that in advance. Perfect. Now, yeah. if you're unsuccessful in terms of bidding on a property, that's fully refundable. Yeah. But if you're the win and bid, that goes towards the ten percent of what is the hammer price. Mm-hmm. So, so the hammer price then will be obviously what is a agreed on the system. Of that. Yeah. And actually, in terms of trends, I know you're up and running with best bid since February of this year? Yeah, only since February of this year. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's great to see new technologies coming into the marketplace. It's, it's what we mm. like to see. Um, so but have you an indication at this point, say, in terms of your um, your advised minimum value or, or the, your guide price? Are you finding that that's being achieved at auction? Is it slightly under? Is it slightly over? What are the trends? Um, it's probably, to be honest with you, it's more. It's not about where the advised um, market value is or in terms of it being accurate or not. I suppose for us, it's just about making sure that the actual buyer community out there is aware that these assets are available and for sale, right? So it's um, in terms of the units that we've brought to the market, uh, we probably have a success rate of about 60 
to 70% in terms of the units that have been sold. Um, and where they haven't sold actually by online auction, we've obviously gone into negotiations with those interested parties outside of that particular event. And in that instance, what we do is, if we do agree a sale with, that, with those parties offline, let's say, the any agreement that's reached is still subject to the online conditions of sale okay. so it still has to be concluded within sort of 24 hours or two days of 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 including those negotiations and then obviously 28 days then for the final payment in full very good but um sorry just to clarify are you seeing a trend of the guide prices being um exceeded or Slightly exceeded. Slightly and exceeded. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're from our perspective, we put a lot of time and effort into the valuation. So we don't overprice things. And we certainly put them out there for what we see as true open market value. Yeah. And, 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 and that is that is a different strategy than what maybe Irish investors and, and property buyers are used to in online auctions, because we know that there's a model out there where you bring them in quite low with the expectation that it would be exceeded by 20%. And even at that, you're only maybe hitting what might be the market value. So that's not a strategy you've there was adopted. Probably, that was probably evident if you want to roll back maybe sort of three, four years more so than it yeah. is now. I would think the trend now is that you actually go out there and you put it on for what is the open market value. Yeah. And then if, the, if you've done your right sort of marketing campaign and, and created your right awareness interest and stuff like that, well, then you may find a buyer. You should find a buyer in that period. But uh, to put it on at an undervalue um, is just something that we don't do. Yeah. And so. what about first time buyers? How are they reacting? Because I know having worked with first time buyers for more than a decade, um, back when auctions were just taking hold in Ireland, these multi-lot auctions back in 2011, first-time buyers were understandably anxious, but also their funders, their mortgage, uh, mortgage providers were understandably anxious. Now, I know that's changed slightly, but are you finding first-time buyers embracing the auction scenario? Um, I would say it's, it's still difficult because where you're a first-time buyer and you're obviously... You know, the, the, the scenario is that you are financing a considerable amount of this purchase price through a traditional lender or whatever it might be. It's difficult to get the timing right. Um, so, you know, what we've tried to do is we've tried to introduce uh, funders or, and finance providers that can work within that time scale. Um, so what that might allow, let's say, for instance, a first time buyer is the opportunity to conclude the sale, if you like, within that 28 day window, but then an opportunity to refinance that slightly further down the road. Um, so it is that balance between, you know, if I'm a first time buyer, yes, the property is, seems attractive in terms of price, but how can I actually conclude the transaction within that time frame? That is the, the balance and act that needs to be done. And I would imagine that time certainty is exactly why sellers like this technology. Yeah, well, yeah, they like it from that perspective. Uh, obviously, buyers like it from the perspective of transparency and speed as well. Um, but ultimately, the, the, the seller, you know, one of the key aspects is, from, for us, we can conclude the whole sale from start to finish in about a nine and a half week period, as opposed to the traditional hmm. uh, private oh, yeah. treaty sale, which normally takes six plus months. So. And is that, is that a selling point for you then? As such? Oh, it is for sure. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, through marketing the property properly, putting it on our platform and doing the right kind of valuation and presenting the property, um, yes, you can get the sale all the way through with their legal pack done 
and uh, and having that available to any interested parties at the right time. Because uh, what I'm interested in is you, you've only been you've only had the site up in, since February. Hasn't it's it? only been op- in operation since February. So how do you has it been tough marketing that or, or how 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 is how how do you direct yourself towards towards the market yourself? Um, I suppose we do a lot of stuff online. We do a lot of stuff through social media. Um, I'm actively involved in the industry day in day out myself. So when I'm speaking to people, I use this as an alternative platform for for bringing property to the market. Right. Um, you mean a lot of people who have homeowners and what have you traditionally just go down the private radio route. That's it. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to you know. You can sell your house by numerous different methods. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, uh, you know what method you choose is kind of up to yourself. But uh, what I would say is, through the bestbid.ie platform, is that it's online timed auctions. That is a trend that is certainly seeing very much an upward growth in terms of uh, both seller interest and buyer interest. Uh, and I think we're so we're, the trend is to use online um, sites like yourselves. Then absolutely. I think uh, you know. I think there's you know the competition will prove that that particular business model has been very successful, and um, and we see that ourselves. And in terms in terms of how people live and how people consume, you know, whether it be sort of medical advice or order food or whatever they might do, everybody is migrated to do this online. And well, actually, even even for property bidding, because property bidding is something we've been talking about for the last number of years. Yeah. Um. You know the the first company coming into Ireland was arguably a UK company and maybe didn't wasn't a great fit maybe with the Irish conveyancing model and uh, so the delay slightly frustrated that model and I know that there are now a number of providers um, in the online in the online bidding technology which is great because it's something we want to see rolled out across the marketplace so in terms of your own technology did you develop your technology in-house so to answer that is, I have a background in both technology and in property. And um, so we developed, um, I suppose, 50-50 in terms of our technology developed in-house. And some of the technology then was from a third-party provider. But you have proprietary rights? We do. We do to certain elements of it. Um, I suppose the way I would look upon that is that uh, we're experts in terms of property sales and marketing property and everything else like that. In terms of the pure technology and the back office system. There's other experts out there. So we have plugged into absolutely proven technology for the auction platform. And that's what we're utilizing at this moment. And look, that's the nature. That's the nature of collaboration. But am I right in suggesting that maybe this technology isn't just going to be used for your own estate agency? Yeah, what we can do there is, um, I suppose that touches on the point, who is ultimately the end user for this? And I guess, um, I mean, this technology can be used by homeowners, by asset managers, by institutional funds, looking to dispose of assets via our platform, and also estate agents who want to look at additional channels channels that they may want to bring their properties to market through. And um, so what I would say to you is, visit bestbid.ie. If you haven't got an account already, set yourself up well, an account. It's the way to go in the account. future, obviously. Well, absolutely. You know, set yourself up on an account, and the next time we have, um, we release our, uh, our auction catalogue, you, you know, you'd be ready to go in terms of expressing indeed, your interest. Sounds very good indeed. That was Mark Durkin, founder and director of bestbid.ie. Thank you for joining us today, Mark, indeed. And that's it for us today in the studio. Thank you for joining us on Property Matters, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. Okay, and we want to thank all of our guests for joining <coughs> us here today. And also thanks to Shane Flynn, who was on sound and did me massive favour this morning, or earlier on. Thank you, Shane. And our producer, Katie Tallon. And we're back at the same time next week. Stay tuned for Bowl of Soul, which is coming up next. From Brian Fox and myself, Carl Tallon. Have a good week. <laughs>